Spencer, you were doing a 24-hour mountain bike race this past weekend. How did you keep your body going for 24 hours? Fred, that's right. I went down to Arizona for 24 hours in the old Pueblo. It was a four-man team, so you had to do a lap and rest and recover and go back out and do another lap. One thing I was relying on was the Floyd's of Leadville protein recovery shake mix that uh, has that CBD in it. It seems to help with uh, recovery. You know, we get a lot of questions about CBD as a recovery product. As a quick primer, uh, yes, cannabis. Uh, CBD comes from that plant. Now there's THC, which is the psychoactive ingredient. And then there's CBD, cannabidiol, which has been shown to, you know, help with pain management and inflammation and soreness. Uh, it sounds like it worked for you. Yeah, Floyd's likes to say that their CBD products can ease your pain, get you back in the game. It does help combat muscle soreness and inflammation. I think it does. I've had experience with a variety of the Floyd's products. They've got skin cream, balms, they've got that protein uh, powder mix, as well as a hydration mix that you can actually have while you're out riding or doing whatever activity you like to do. And uh, they also have these new soft gels out, little gummies. So uh, I, I've had pretty good luck with the CBDs uh, through, throughout the different races and rides I've done. Well, thanks to Floyd's for sponsoring this week's episode of the podcast. For more information, floydsofleadville.com. Let's get on with the show. Welcome back. Welcome back to the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Spencer Paulson. Spencer's Tuesday. We had a long weekend. Uh, I actually rode my bicycle outside this weekend, despite the fact that it was freezing cold, snowing at times. Um, I'm, I'm getting back in the swing of things, um, but I cannot, I, can't, I just, I can't claim to be as much of a hard man as you because you did a 24 hour mountain bike race. Tell me about it. What was going on? Yeah, that, that's right. Like I said in the uh, little ad read we did to, to lead off, I was down in Arizona, 24 hours of the old Pueblo. It's an Epic Rides event, which uh, we know and love the Epic Rides guys. They put on the off-road series. Well, this is, I think this is their oldest event. It's 20 years running now, and they've been doing this race in the desert just north of Tucson. It's just a really cool spot that's covered in cacti with views of Mount Lemon and the, the mountains around Tucson. And uh, you go out there, you got a 16 mile loop, a lot of it's single track, which is very fun and fast. And you got about 2000 people out there uh, trying to turn as many laps as possible over the course of 24 hours. Yeah. So I followed your um, various social media posts, including some of the Instagram videos you were putting up. It looked terrifying. I mm. mean, uh, it, you know, look, I've done a 24-hour race before. I was pretty bad at it. It was scary. I, I was not going as fast as you were. In one of these videos, it's like looks like, I don't know, speed racer flying through the dark with a little bit of light on the trail. Uh, you looked like you were going really fast. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're racing. And it's, it's a funny thing when you do these races because, at least in my position, I was doing it in a four-man team. So it's a sort of a weird thing where, yes, it's an endurance event, but it's also kind of a sprint event because usually you only do one lap per person, and that's maybe an hour, hour 15 worth of racing. So you're getting after it. And uh, I'll tell you what, though, yes, it does look a little scary from the video, but man, the, the light systems have improved so much since the last time I did a 24-hour race, which I think was about 10 years ago at the 24 Hours of Moab. And I, I got my hands on a light in motion Seika light, which is like some ridiculous amount of lumens. And it it's, it's pretty bright. And once you get rolling and you're accustomed to the beam, uh, it's not quite as scary as it looks. But yeah, those cacti do seem to kind of 
jump out at you, don't they? Did you have any Tito's? Uh, no, bro. Didn't hang out with Lance. And hang out. Lance wasn't there this year. No, I, don't, I don't know what, what the deal was, but he he bailed on it. Um, Tom Danielson was there, so that's your kind of... There you uh, go. Yeah, he's the next Lance, I've been told. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I just was really hoping you'd come back with some stories sitting around with your bros, drinking some Tito's, <laughs> reminiscing <laughs> about the good old days. Well, we were sitting around. We were, we were reminiscing. I mean, I was on a team with Jeremiah Bishop, which was great. He's uh, just a really fun guy to hang out with, a wealth of information and stories. He's multi-time national champion and telling me all kinds of cool stories about the many, many races he's done over the years. And he, he rallied a kind of motley crew of us to ride, ride bikes for the Canyon team. And Canyon's actually going to provide a bike for the off-road series for me to ride. So I got to hop on that for the first time. And uh, yeah, it was me and him and uh, this kid, uh, uh, Cooper Weens. Sound, sound like a familiar name? Well, it's Dave Weens' son. Vanilla um, Gorilla Jr. Vanilla Gorilla, yep. And, um, but more importantly, it's Susan DiMattia. It's, it's DiMattia, excuse me, Olympic bronze medalist is, yeah. is his uh, mom. So he's got good genes. And, and, uh, and then also we had Justin Mock on the team who's a pro uh, road racer. He was on the Safeway team for a couple of years. Both really good. That's a good bike racer name too. Mock. Yeah. Awesome name. Uh, well, we're going to talk all about your 24-hour experience in the second half of the show. And we're going to go deep into the just the history and culture of 24-hour mountain bike racing. Because here it is, 2019, you did a 24-hour mountain bike race. We're like a decade after this format of racing hit its peak and then began to slide back into the cycling world uh, because there's no more 24 hours of Moab, no more 24 hours of National Series. Some of the marquee races have gone away, but I'm really psyched to hear that people are still gathering in the desert and riding their bikes all night long. Uh, we're going to talk about that second half of the show. First half of the show, though, we're going to get to some news bits. We're going to talk about the racing that's going on. And then we're going to talk about the Red Hook Criterium. We had a story on the site this past week. Unfortunately, the Red Hook Criterium has canceled all of its events for 2019. Um, I've reported on this race on and off over the last decade. I have you know, pretty deep knowledge and background about how this race has functioned, what it means to the growing world of fixed gear racing. And I've been talking to some people about what they think the fallout of this is going to be. So we're going to talk all about Red, Red and, Hook. And yet you've never raced a fixie crit, Fred. And I, I would love to see that someday. I think that'd be really entertaining. <laughs> I've been racing. I've been writing about the Tour de France for a long time, too. I've never we, raced the Tour. Yeah, well, we'd, we would scramble all of the available ambulances and medics in the region, and we'd be ready to go with a huge stack of Tegaderm. It'd be fun. We should do it. I rode my buddy's fixed gear bike on the streets of uh, Brooklyn when I lived there. And that alone was completely terrifying to me. I can't imagine racing one in a Criterium. I'm bad enough regular Criterium racer. Sounds terrifying. I can't imagine paying $15 for a latte. Hey, let's, uh, let's, let's blitz through some of this news. We have racing going on. We're about halfway through the Tour of Oman, or as oh, I like man. to call it, the... Um, Astana Desert Grand Fondo. Yeah, the Astana guys seem to really like Tour of Oman for some reason. Uh, Andre Luchenko is again just ripping people's faces off as he did last year. Well, he won, he won the overall. He won last the year. overall, but yes. it was Mike Angel, Mind Freak Lopez who won the big stage on the Green Mountain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then we're already four or five stages in. He and didn't win any stages looks, last year. No. I think yeah. Luchenko is probably the strongest guy here. Yeah. 
Um, Oman, interesting race, been around for a long time. I always think of it as the first real tune-up race for the Greg Van Avermats and all the heavy classics guys before Hütznusblad, because they get to just ride around in terrible crosswinds out in the desert and um, just like, it it looks like really fast, flat-out, really difficult challenging racing yeah there's some punchy climbs as well which which is why a guy like Lutsenko has won two stages now so far up to up to this point in Oman he's he's definitely that along the same lines as a uh, Van Avermet in terms of his skill set I'd say when we you know the last week we had a round table we were ranking our early season races uh where does Oman rank for you alongside you know down under UAE tour uh Wilta Algarve some of these other races uh, Oman's pretty low on my list, honestly. Yeah. I, I do like that it has Green Mountain to, to give you a taste of the potential for some of these GC riders. Algarve, though, is such an exciting race, relatively speaking. Algarve has just got these narrow European roads, and some of the continental guys are just firing on all cylinders, trying to prove themselves in a European UCI-level race. It's a, It's a different dynamic, to me, at least. Yeah, Oman is... It's down there. It's it's also the moonscape, man. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's interesting to see these photos of the Peloton winding through, uh, you know, these desolate mountains. But there's very rarely any fans. And it just... Just do a gravel race there. Yeah, there you go. That's, that's an idea. Uh, okay, moving on. The other race we had go on, wrap up over the weekend, was the Vuelta Colombia 2.1. Got to get the 2.1 there in the title. <laughs> uh, Spencer, you were busy racing your bike, but so you did not get to watch the finale. But the final day, uh, the, the Queen stage was the penultimate day. Uh, which saw Julian Alaphilippe in the leader's jersey, which set us up for a thrilling finale, and they climbed up to the summit finish, and that's where just kind of pandemonium broke out, where the Colombian riders were, were just really attacking, extremely aggressive racing. Uh, Nairo Quintana attacking alongside Egan Bernal. Sosa, Miguel Angel Lopez was in there. Uh, and it set it set up some uh, a pretty thrilling finale. Yeah, it's literally every Colombian racer seems to be in the mix here. If you look at the, the results, there's only one rider in the top 15 who is not Colombian. So... Yeah, you had a little bit of a, a little bit of a boost, I think, for the hometown riders. Although you you had something interesting you mentioned to me before we got on the air here, Fred. A little, a little stay woke on the finish here. You thought maybe uh, maybe the little hanky panky going on. So the race finished with the Alto de las Palmas, and look, there's been some stuff written on the internet about how oh, this was the best day of racing ever, and oh my god, this is you know why can't races be interesting again? And it's like well, or why can't the Tour de France be this interesting? It's like well. This race is in February, <laughs> so it's interesting because people are on all sorts of form, and you know, it's the tour is a little harder because everyone's really trying to win and on full and, form. And it's a it's a twenty one day race, not a six day. Nah, there's that part too. Uh, but anyway, so it finishes up this Alto de las Palmas. It's a long climb raced on what seemed to be a highway, big wide open road, which I thought was not that great. But yes, there were lots of Colombian fans out there, just going crazy, waving flags. Reminds you of the Basque fans from the late nineties, early two thousands, of just crowding the road. And uh, you know, this group of Colombians is throwing haymakers at each other, and sure enough, some dingbat fan is running alongside the group, runs into a different fan, and just flies into the group and, like, knocks oh. Sosa off his bike. I think Quintana had his put, put his foot down, and... 
at that point, Miguel Angel Lopez is out there on his own, and you're like, okay, well, I mean, he could just floor it. He's probably the strongest guy. He's in the, in the leader's jersey and, and win, but kind of kept going, and Sosa and Bernal caught back on, and then Quintana came back on, and Lopez put in another surge, which led me to think that he was definitely the strongest rider. And then, lo and behold, in the final switchback, he just kind of stops. It seemed like he kind of waited up for Bernal and Sosa, mm. and Quintana sprinted around them, and no response from either of the riders, neither of whom looked like they were particularly, like, at least Lopez didn't look like he was gassed. So hmm. Quintana took the stage win. The announcer went completely bonkers. But I, to be fair, he was going bonkers from probably kilometer zero. <laughs> he was very fired up. Um, and so Quintana takes a win. Lopez takes a win. Sosa and You Bernal, get a win. Yeah. And you get a win. And you get a win. Seemed like everyone got to look really good. Yeah. Hmm. Well, got to keep the Colombian fans happy. So what, what are you going to do? I, I really like that uh, Lopez is, is firing right now. I mean, guess, like we just said, he was on, he was on good form for Oman last year, but... Boy, you gotta. I really hope he he could can can make a make a mark on some of these Grand Tours coming up this season because he's a really exciting rider, very explosive. And I believe he's doing the Giro. That's what I was thinking too. So check out Pro Cycling stats real quick for that one. Yeah, psych Giro d'Italia dot Lopez dot computer dot com. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I have high hopes for the guy. He's mid steady yeah, progression. Yeah, he's, he, he's on the calendar for the Giro. That's, so. Yeah. There you go. 25 years old still. He seems like he's older than that, doesn't he? He looks a little bit older yeah, with his cycling gear on. He's one of those guys that when the uh, glasses and helmet come off, you're like, oh, what junior high school do you go to? <laughs> Excuse me, lost boy. Oh, wait, no, you are one of the world's best cyclists. Anyway, Columbia was interesting. Uh, Oman has been, eh. Wait till the Green Mountain stage. That's coming up, and that 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 should be worth a good watch. Yeah, I am getting ready to head out to the UAE tour. We have a fourteen and a half hour flight, um, which another early season race that is somewhat interesting. But for me, I don't know about you. The the racing season for me begins with uh, omelet head nosebleed mm. um, mm -hmm. coming up here because I yeah. love that race. It's always exciting. Less than two weeks away. To me, that signifies the official start of bike racing. But I agree. This preseason stuff is pretty fun too. All right, Spencer, let's get to the news here about the Red Hook crit. Um, this news came down late last week. Um, I got a phone call. Well, I'd been in touch with David Trimble, the race's um, owner and founder over the last few weeks about the status of the 2019 series because I, you know I've covered this race and this series for many many years both for Vela News and for other publications and I knew that um, Trimble's marquee sponsorship with Rockstar Games which is a video game manufacturer was up at the end of 2018 and you know the series really financially depended a lot on that sponsorship going forward. And I also knew that, um, you know, the series itself costs a lot to put on. It's a, you know, it's a race that's open to anyone to participate in. But when you actually go and attend a Red Hook race, it looks and feels very much like a traditional professional bike race, maybe even bigger. Jumbotrons, beer tents, huge crowds, music. I mean, he was also taking it international too, which is yep. a huge, uh, a huge challenge, I'm sure. And in 2018, I actually went out to the race and spent a few days hanging out with Trimble and his production staff to see how they put the race on. And I noticed there was some stress in the air, which I thought was normal because, you know, anytime you're putting on an event, there's stress and there's details. and Especially one as dangerous as Red Hook. Grid. Yeah. And there's, you know, Trimble's a detail-oriented guy. I started to realize that a lot of the stress actually 
was coming down because the overhead costs to put on the New York City race were increasing every day. And it was kind of an unforeseen increase. As I understand, the venue that put on, that that hosts the race, um, the costs were going up to use the venue. And as it turns out, the costs went up so much that the um, racing series, which usually was four race series with New York, London, Barcelona, and Milan, uh, the cost for the New York event went up so much that they only had a l- enough left in the bank to do the Milan race. So mm. they canceled the London and the Barcelona race. Wow. And, and they had to change the venue a few times for that New York race over the course of a, of a few years, didn't they? I feel like I remember reading that one of your previous stories. You know, the original race was held on open city streets and it was held in the Red Hook neighborhood. And then um, Hence the name. after a few years of it growing and attracting a lot of people, they had to take it off the streets because um, of costs and crowd control. So they found this Brooklyn Cruise Terminal, which is also in Red Hook, which conveniently has a 1.5 kilometer twisty, windy track in it, which is great. And it actually hosts a uh, um, car race, the Formula E electric car racing. I don't know. It's apparently it's huge. And um, <laughs> sounds fun. And so Red Hook used that venue too. And so you know the cost for using this venue kept going up. And you know it's a dynamic that we see all the time in professional American bike racing, which is bike race costs lots of money to put on. You basically you know. Put it on. You're basically putting on a party. People are not paying to attend. They come for free. There's huge overhead costs, and you punch out those overhead costs through sponsorship. And yeah, you're collecting some money here and there through sale of merchandise and through sale of hot dogs and beer and and stuff like that. And you know, with Red Hook Crit, they did charge entry fees, but the entry fees plus the merch plus all that stuff was never big enough to punch out the full cost of the event, and that's where all the sponsorship came in. Specialized was a sponsor, but yeah, a lot of it depended on this Rockstar video game sponsor. And so, as I understand it, when the Rockstar video game sponsor agreement or proposed agreement for 2019 just wasn't as big, um, Drimble decided to take a year off and say, you know, I have a certain level for this event that I want it to be at, and I don't want to put it together at a lower level and lower, you know, amount of money. And so I'm just going to take a year off and regroup. Yeah, that's always uh, concerning when an organizer says they're going to take a year off. It, it can quickly become more than a year and can also quickly become in perpetuity. Unfortunately, it's, I mean, we see that happen with conventional road races. Yeah. And so those are the, a lot of the questions I've been getting asked, which was, Hey, you know, you know, this race pretty well. What do you think the chances are of Trimble bringing Red Hook crit back at the level it was? And I don't know, it's 50-50, flip of the coin. You either find a sponsor or you don't, to one hand. You know, the what gives me hope is that the reason Red Hook Crit was able to get the sponsor in the first way, place was because it had such a groundswell of attention and fans and media and all these things coming together that you can't just manufacture. It was very organic. Had all these things come together that the sponsor was enticed to come on board. And yeah, you know, there are other Fix Your Crit races out there, but the Red Hook one was the only one where this ah, this magical collection of global um, media and on-site fans and everything came together to produce this huge event. And you really see that 
at least on our end, in terms of reader interest in Red Hook Crit, certainly looking at the website as I follow along throughout the course of my day of work, I can tell that our Velo News readers understand what Red Hook is. They care about it. And when this story came out, they were reading it and they were they were really interested in it. And that speaks to the fact that Trimble's been able to create this phenomenon. And I think that combined with the fact that he stages these events in major, major cities that give his sponsors the type of visibility that they would expect from a big investment more so than the average bike race. Those are factors that maybe are going to keep him afloat if he plans to bring this back in 2020. Yeah, it's both the um, thing he has going for him, but also a hurdle because putting on events in those cities also means the overhead costs Mm. go up. So it really is, I mean, it comes down to just whether or not you can find a sponsor that, um, you know, has enough interest in... Um, having big events put on in major cities, having a worldwide media footprint around bike racing to put it on. And, and I will say, I don't think it's going to be a bike industry. I wouldn't guess that it would be bike no, industry sponsorship. I doubt it. No. Really doubt it. Yeah. Bike industry sponsorship can get you some money. It can get you a lot of gear. It can get you, you know, a lot of the things you need to get your event up and running. But to put on event in a race of that magnitude where you're talking about six figures, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you know, you have to have some type of non-endemic sponsor come on board. So, you know, I reached out to some other people in the community and some of the feedback I got, I talked to the people at the Mission Crit, which is the fixed gear race in San Francisco. And, you know, they're trying, they are trying to replicate what uh, Red Hook did, which was fixed gear race right in the middle of a big city, you know, a lot of media attention. And, you know, they are coming along, but they said that they're still so much smaller. Like, neither one of the organizers does it full time. They they said they both, you know, struggle to break even on the event, maybe lose money. They have several thousand spectators come out, and they even have Red Bull as a sponsor. But it's just not the same. Uh, I spoke to some racers in Italy, and they said, you know, there's this um, Crit Italia series now, which is 15 to 20 fixed gear races across northern Italy. There's a real community there. There's hundreds of racers. But even those, it's real grassroots vibe um you know they yeah some of them feel like a party but there's nothing that's like red hook apparently there's a race in germany called the rad race which is a point-to-point so fig- mass participant or a mass start point-to-point fixed gear race like a thousand people point-to-point interesting do you want to do that spencer mass start uh, fixies <laughs> sounds a little hairy how long is it what's the distance on that kind of race uh, i don't know um uh, it sounds very interesting it sounds like a lot of fun but you know everyone says well there are you know there are other races out there and maybe one or two of them will gain popularity in this fixed community with red hook departing but pretty much everyone i spoke to was skeptical that anything was going to take the mantle for what Red Hook was was doing. And you know, you know, listeners might brush this off. Ah, oh, it's this fixed gear racing thing. It's this odd, strange format, which I get. I totally get. But I think the larger story here is talking about yeah, a storyline that both you and I have covered throughout the last few years, which is the rise of non-traditional bike races, be it gravel, be it fondos, be it uh, mass participant, mass start races, these races that are outside of the normal model of traditional road cycling races. So to see one which really, you know, rose to really high heights, uh, have to take a big step back. I don't know. It's interesting to see. It's, um, you know, it's a different model than a dirty Kanza or some of the big gravel races, but it does speak to 
the limits of where non-traditional cycling can go. Well, just cycling in general, because when I think of Red Hook Crit and the business model, I think of it as a, as a major professional race. Yeah, I agree as well. I think with 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 Red Hook and with any of these events, any sort of bike race, if it stays true to its core and to what got it to the point of greatness, where where it is or or where it was when he left off, I think that's what'll carry the day, and hopefully that's what will keep the sponsorship money flowing if they can see this continued support and interest from the core fans and riders who have always loved Red Hook and have always turned out for it. And yeah, maybe that means it's not a global series anymore. Maybe that means it's just the Red Hook crit in New York City, and that's all. I think that's okay. I don't think that would be the worst thing if it means he can carry on with it and have a sustainable business. And and let's face it, that's 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 how the the Red Hook really took off and got traction was in that you know the biggest city in the country, and that makes sense to me. To to, to take it to other major cities throughout the the world, that's that's a stretch. I still remember the first one I went to. I believe it was 2011, uh, and it was it was pretty wild. You know, having come from gone, going to all these professional bike races to this weird oddity going on, and there were like art installations being beamed on the wall, and uh, it was fun. Um, so here's hoping Red Hook Crit comes back, Spencer. Before we get to the next part of the podcast, uh, we got a new print issue of Vela News out. That's right. It is the is the March-April issue, which focuses on off-road racing, gravel, mountain bike, dirt. What's going on? This is a fun issue. We, we had a good time putting this one together. There's a variety of stories. A lot of them are about gravel. Some of them are about mountain biking. I did a feature story on gravel's big year, which is this year, 2019. I think it is. A lot of people I've talked to think it is as well. And there's a few reasons for that. One of them being the fact that Dirty Kanza is now owned by Lifetime Fitness, which is a major corporation. Uh, as you may know, Lifetime owns a whole chain of, of uh, fitness studios throughout the Midwest and the country as well. And uh, that's a big change. And uh, Leadville 100, for instance, through the Leadville Trail Race Series is, is owned by Lifetime. So we'll see what happens with that. There's also some races putting up big prize money. And... Um, yeah, you'll I, have to read. You'll have to read the story to find out what the third thing is. Yeah, I liked your story. You, you did some really great reporting. You talked to I don't know upwards of 20, 25 people. Um, I did a story about a Nika team that is a high school mountain biking team in the town of Richmond, California, which not far from Nika's birthplace in Berkeley, but Richmond. It's an inner city community, and um, it was all about the efforts. Over the, over the course of like a decade that it took to finally get a Nike team going in Richmond and the success there. But anyway, we have a bunch of great stories in this issue. Has a cool photo of some guy just shredding trail on his gravel bike in between some trees. And don't worry, there is still coverage of road cycling in this magazine as well. We've got a great feature story from Rebecca Reza, the Vuelta a Costa Rica. And she went down there, checked out this crazy race that's been really troubled by all sorts of issues with doping and uh, she went down to see what's going on and see if they've found a way to get past this uh, sort of dark history the race has. This is an awesome issue. Again, March, April 2019, Get Dirty in 2019 is the cover line. Check it out right now. On newsstands, subscribe on velonews.com. Okay, Spencer, enough of this fixed gear 
nonsense. Let's talk mountain bikes. <laughs> Let's talk about something even more weird. <laughs> 24-hour mountain bike racing. <laughs> Let's get to the, the real meat yeah. of professional cycling. This is what you came here for, isn't it, people? 24-hour mountain bike yeah. racing. Do you yeah. want to hear my 24-hour mountain bike racing story? Of course I do. So I was new at Velo News. Um, I had been given an entry into the 24-hour mountain bike race going on at Snow Mountain Ranch. And hey, get a bunch of your coworkers together from Velo News. Get a team together. Come up and race it. I was at that race. Too. Uh, yeah, I asked 2005, around, right? Yep, 2005. Yeah, I, was there. I was there. I asked around. No one wanted to do it. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it solo. Why not? It'll be mm. fun. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it fell the same day as a road bike race that I'd signed up for, which happened to be in the area. So I woke up early, did the road bike race, and then drove over to Snow Mountain Ranch. And I had to start late. I started, I think, two hours late. But I got on my bike and just started riding and riding. Riding and riding and riding and riding. And then my lights died and I... Always, the, always seems to happen, yeah. Rode around in the dark and it was scary. And then it was about 4 a.m. And I was riding up this hill and I couldn't ride up it anymore because my bike felt too heavy. <laughs> and then, you know what? I, there was this beautiful meadow off on the side of the trail. And I was like, man, I think I'm going to have a nice little sit down on that meadow. And I got off my bike, sat down in this meadow. And after about 25 minutes, I was like, oh. I, I can't get back up. I'm stuck. I cannot, I cannot stand up anymore. Uh, it took about an hour and a half for me to actually be able to like get back on my bike, stand up. And I rode to the start finish and I went and slept in my car and then woke up a few hours later and finished it up. How many miles would you say you got in? Um, well over a, over a hundred but that's pretty good. It was especially after doing a road race in the morning. Yeah, it was not the smartest thing I'd ever no, done. No, I wouldn't say. So and, uh, yeah, probably not. I, I was, you know, I was a young lad at the time. I was 24, but it took a while for the old 24 year old Fred to recover. I, I still might be recovering from that here 13 years later. Emotionally, yeah, maybe. Uh, but enough with my 24 hour race experience. The good people want to hear more about yours. So let's get a performance update, Spencer. How did you do? Oh, performance. Oh, I, how did oh, you do in this race? Yeah, well. I was I was going to share a story of my own from my 24-hour racing history real okay. quick before we get into the 24 hours in the Old Pueblo. And that is back in Moab, like about 10 years ago, I did the first lap of 24 hours in Moab in a wedding dress hmm. on a single speed. And I broke my chain and I had to like coast the last four miles of it. Was it, was it a wedding dress fueled chain break? Like did the shawl get, um, no, get it was, stuck in the I chain? Think I, was, I think I ran too much chain tension and the sand, you know, the sand there is just brutal. And so it was, it was a pretty exciting way to start the race. Was there a groom? Uh, it was a Dennis Rodman type situation. Okay. I think it was just me. Okay. So anyway, 24 hours in the old Pueblo. I went down to Arizona, this race just outside of Tucson. This race has been going on for 20 years. You know, 24-hour races are just not as popular as they once were. And uh, it's pretty amazing that the Epic Rides team has been able to keep this one going for two decades, especially considering that uh, nowadays there's there's a handful of 24-hour races that are still successful out there. You know, Frog Hollow is one that people bring up pretty often as a, as a popular race. Um, I think there's a, there's a smattering of others, but it certainly isn't like it was in the late 1990s when it was just burning real hot. Yeah, I was the mountain bike editor at Velo News from uh, 04 to 09, and I remember, I believe it was 2006, when Granny Gear Promotions, which put on the 24 Hours of Old Pueblo, 
got the idea, uh, or not Old Pueblo, uh, Moab, got the idea, let's have a national series. And so they launched this national series, and the whole idea was people were going to drive from location to location and race in these 24-hour races. And, boy, there were a bunch of them. There was, uh, let's see, I think there was one in Georgia. Yeah, I've got this up in front of me yeah. now. It's a, uh, let's see, this was, yeah, 2006, right? Uh, yeah. The, they had uh, six races on the series. So okay. you had Temecula, California, Conyers, Georgia, Morgantown, West Virginia, Killington, Vermont, Kansas City. I don't know where you do a race in Kansas City. That's very strange. And Moab, Utah, to wrap it all up. The cra- yeah, the crazy thing is the travel. If you imagine someone, can, you know, the idea of a series is you get people to go to all the races, right? So someone going from Temecula to Georgia, and that's just in the course of a month. Because that Temecula race is in April. Conyers, Georgia was in May. Man, that would be brutal. And so the series was born out of the momentum that had grown up around 24-hour racing. You know, it was hardly new at that point. It had been around for a few years. 24 Hours of Moab had been around. And, and there were some of these hotbed races that, that people really liked. And I don't know, Spencer, what can you say about the overall experience of a 24-hour race that makes it so enjoyable like why were people wanting to do these events it's a i think a lot of it was a novelty at first where people had they sort of figured out how to do the standard cross-country races there were perhaps some longer distance races mixed in once in a while but there wasn't really anything that truly gave riders an opportunity to to, to challenge themselves in a way that they maybe didn't think they could handle um, and, and doing a 24-hour race, regardless of whether it's solo or as a, as a relay team. And, and originally, when, when 24 Hours of Canaan first started, it was strictly a relay race. And the old story goes that John Stamstead wanted to do it solo, and uh, the race organizers wouldn't let him, so he registered as a four-person team with four variations of his name, and then he just went out and smashed it uh, because the guy's just a beast. And uh, yeah, and then eventually more and more people caught on, the solo category became a thing. But just this concept, it, it's, it's a type of thing where you can wrap your head around it, you know, where if you tell someone, oh, well, I, I was in the expert class of the Mount Snow, blah 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 it's not as simple as saying, we race mountain bikes for 24 hours straight. It, it sort of inspires you a little more when you have something that's easier to latch on to. I also think there was the party element. Which oh, yes, For a lot of, of people is that, yes, you're going to compete. There's four of you or two of you or whatever, and you're going to race all night long. And there's the um, gratifying experience, the Everest cl- climbing Everest-like experience that comes from racing all night long. But there's also the fun of it, which is, you know, I remember going to some of these 24-hour races and people are drinking beer and they're laughing and wearing costumes. And oh, yeah. it, it takes a lot of the edge off of what would have been, you know, a traditional cross-country race where you're like, hey, we're camping out in the woods. We're going to have a good time. We're going to drink some beers, um, do this 24-hour race, and see where we end up. Yeah, the camping is a really crucial element of a successful 24-hour race is having having that village where everyone is near each other and they can hang out and mingle. And, you know, it's easy to get to and from the start area and everyone's kind of in the same boat. So you don't stress about how you have to sleep on the dirt or anything like that. You just you just suck it up for 24 hours and have a good time with it. And it helps to 
have a good buzz from a few beers to get to sleep in the middle of the night too. Well, then I also then remember the uh, men and women who would race in the solo category um, and would do well. Boy, they were seen as the real tough men, tough women of the sport. Chris Etoff. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other hardcore racers. You know, Stampstead. Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically like you were the you were the mountain man of the mountain bike community. Yeah, and those it's, it's it's an interesting sort of connection because some of those riders ended up finding their way into the world of gravel cycling, certainly the longer distance gravel races like Trans-Iowa and Dirty Kanza, because it's a similar type of uh, demand on the, on the physiology and also a similar challenge of, of nutrition, consuming enough food, drinking enough fluids, that sort of thing. Uh, a guy like Jack, Jeff Kirkovi or also um, Yuri Hoswald, they were 24-hour solo racers, and then they kind of transitioned into uh, gravel. Same thing with Rebecca Rush as well. Luis Coben. Remember Luis Coben? Mm, very one, fast. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. fast. Um, so, well, Spencer, here's a question I have for you. Just judging off of the experience you had at Old Pueblo, do you envision 24-hour mountain bike racing making a return to the top of the sport? Do you envision this overall experience and this format of racing uh, again growing in prominence? Or do we think that it is at its natural resting space, which is niche activity that can survive in a few corners of the mountain biking globe, but otherwise isn't really going to you know, make a roaring comeback? That's a good question. It seems to me that, like a lot of things with mountain biking, 24-hour racing reached this saturation point, and there were lots and lots of races, and probably a lot of them weren't done very well. And I think probably some people didn't have the best experiences at them, whether it was uh, related to the actual race itself in terms of the course or the timing or whether it was the overall experience. Maybe it wasn't enough of a party vibe. Maybe it wasn't fun enough. Uh, So I feel like that's happened with a lot of aspects of mountain bike racing where it got a huge growth curve and then it dwindled and fell off. And so I guess what I'm getting at here is that it it would never, I don't think 24-hour racing would ever get back to that point like it was in the late 1990s in terms of just the saturation and popularity and everything. But I don't think that means it won't become more popular and perhaps grow a little more than where it is right now. Because like I said, there's not a ton of races out there, uh, but the ones that are out there, I think are, are very well done. And they really encourage this community that keeps people coming back for more and more. The, the thing about this 24 hours in the old Pueblo is that about half of the people who show up for this race aren't even racing. They don't, they don't race at all. There, there's, there's about 4,000 people camping in this spot in the desert, middle of nowhere, and uh, there's only about 2,000 that are actually in the race. So that tells you something about the community that's been created and about the excitement surrounding it. I mean, I, I was literally having a beer at just a kind of random little tap room in Tucson waiting for, uh, for Jeremiah to pick me up to go out to dinner after I'd flown into Tucson. And at the table behind me, I heard just some just some person, not at all a cyclist, talking about the race and how you can go out and camp and hang out. And it's not like you have to race. You can just go hang out and have a good time. And that's, so my point, I guess that I'm getting around to is that if more race promoters find a way to cultivate that kind of experience, 
Yes, I think you can certainly see more 24-hour races return to the mountain bike calendar. They might not get as big as Old Pueblo. I mean, it's a really big event if you think about the thousands of people coming out to do this. But on a regional level, there's no reason why you couldn't find the right time of the year when there's perhaps a lull in the schedule, find a really fun course, a great campground. And you just got to build that grassroots following where people realize it's going to just be a fun time and they know they can come back year after year to do that. And, and, and it's, uh, you know, you see how fast old Pueblo sells out and you can tell they've got, uh, they've got a, they've got a way of keeping a hold on people. Uh, I believe the dynamic you're talking about, Spencer, is something I call the Hey Mabel. Hey Mabel? I, I've used that uh, to judge the popularity of bicycle events in my in my many travels, which is, are you ever in a public setting, a non-cycling public setting, and you hear people talking about the bicycle race? I saw that, obviously, in, uh, in Flanders when I'm there for the classics. That's all people are talking about. When I was in South Africa for the Cape Epic, People were talking just like the regular person at the drugstore when asked why I was in town. And I said, Cape Epic. And they like they knew who had won. Why were we at the drugstore? Uh, no reason whatsoever. Um, actually, I saw that once with the USA Pro Challenge after Rory Sutherland won the stage in Boulder. Yeah. I was at the Safeway in Boulder and like the, uh, the, the ladies in front of me were talking about that. So very rarely do you see it, you know totally reach into the mainstream in American communities. Um, actually, in your story about Dirty Kanza, you have a Hey Mabel type scene where yeah. the locals are- The ranchers. The ranchers yeah. are talking about Dirty Kansas. So, you know, for all those armchair promoters out there, I think that's a barometer that you can use to measure the success of your event. Another thing too that I noted that to me indicates the success of Old Pueblo is I talked to several volunteers who had previously raced the event and they they didn't get into this year's, I believe, or, or they just for some reason didn't register, uh, but they decided to come out and volunteer anyway to be part of it. They, they didn't have to be racing with a number pinned on to enjoy it. And that's really cool to me as well. And, uh, and furthermore, I think that the last thing I'd point to as, as an indication of success is a lot of people I talk to, this is also the only mountain bike race that they do. Like they, they ride mountain bikes, they, 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 they're active people. Yeah. They probably go to REI or something. I don't know. That's not the core, you know, cycling racer type. They, they do, they do 24 hours of old Pueblo and that's just something they do. It's not, it's not a lifestyle as much as, as it is for someone like you or I. Well, now you spoke to one of these all-stars, these, uh, old Pueblo all-stars, right? Yes. This guy has done basically every everyone right yeah we got dave million here on the podcast i talked to him before the race he gave me some pointers and uh talked to him about how the race has changed and evolved over the years and uh about all the crazy old technology he used to have to suffer through the race with v-brakes and that sort of thing all right let's hear from dave all right out here in arizona with dave million where are we right now tell me a, give, set the scene so we're in this beautiful desert, this gorgeous Sonoran desert with, uh, with about, oh, I don't know, 1,500 mountain bikers running around uh, getting ready for the race tomorrow. Tents everywhere, um, a beautiful row of porta potties. Yeah, the porta potties really add the ambiance. So we're here uh, just outside Tucson, Arizona, 24 hours in the old Pueblo in what is known as 24-hour town. Yes, sir. But it hasn't always been this big. So this is the 20th edition 
of this 24-hour race. And the reason I'm talking to you is because you have been here for every single one. Uh, take me back to that first edition of 24 Hours in the Old Pueblo. Why did you decide to do it? What was it like? What do you remember from that first race in 1999? Yeah, so uh, we've been doing the 24 Hours in Moab, and, uh, and my buddy noticed this, and uh, somehow, uh, maybe on the internet, I don't even know if the internet was around then. Um, and, uh, and he uh, su suggested we come do this race, and we were all in, and... Uh, and we came out here and there must have been about, I'm guessing, 200 riders and spectators total. Mm -hmm. um, it, it wasn't right here, it was a little bit further down. It was on the other side of the bitches, those, uh, those seven mean hills. And that was actually at the end of the course. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, we all were just camped out. Hardly, uh, everybody had a ground fire, which is totally verboten now. Okay. <laughs> It's good to know, actually. The first yeah. time for me, so I won't do that. Yeah, um, and uh, and uh, it was real intimate. You know, they had they had an announcer. They totally messed up the scoring. We <laughs> we we were actually first in our category that year, and uh, they didn't even have us on the podium at all. It's somebody else had already left. We had to go and dispute it. And Todd was like, "Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense that they left, and you're still here." <laughs> And you were doing a two-man team. We were doing a four-man. A four-man. Okay. Yeah. Do you yeah. remember? Do you remember what bike you were riding back then? <sighs> yeah, I think I had a. Uh, I think I had a specialized M2 hardtail. Nice. Yeah, one of the red ones. Yep. Red. Yeah, exactly. With the old uh, Manitou or yep. something. Yeah. I remember building bikes like that back in the bike shop that I grew up in. It was the best. Killer bike. I love that bike. Man, a lot's changed since then. So it's just this. This event has totally blown up in popularity. It's probably. I think it is the longest running 24-hour race now. I believe, um, I believe you're right. And this is in a world where 24-hour mountain bike racing is kind of not very popular anymore. Um, what do you think makes this event so uh, popular? Why do you think people keep coming back for it like you? So one thing is, is the course. The single track out here is really second to none. I mean, it's flowy. It's, it's got, you know, some minor real hard climbs. It's um, it's in beautiful area and the weather is always perfect. Like last night, where it rained about an inch. Yeah, it's beautiful, man. Last <laughs> night, yeah, great conditions. <laughs> and 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 I think it's really fun. Um, I think Todd, uh, the director, has made this just a blast. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, everybody comes out and just seems to be having a good time. Mm -hmm. For me, it's all about hanging with my friends, going and turning a real fast lap, if possible. Mm -hmm. That's usually my friends turning the fast lap, you know. <laughs> and uh, you just find the right friends. Yeah, exactly. You got to have fast friends. Yes. So yeah, that, so that's that's the main thing. I mean, it's a really good time. It's well organized now. Um, Todd's really grown this thing up well, and mm -hmm. uh, and just made it really enjoyable. What are your What are some of your favorite memories over the last twenty years that you've been coming to do this race? So, you know, I've 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 luckily had fast friends and been on the podium, I don't know, seven or eight times. Nice. That's, you know, on the, on the top of the podium, on the podium more than that. But mm -hmm. um, Usually the four-man team? Four-man. Now I've been doing five-man with, uh, five-person with, uh, with a woman co-ed. Okay, nice. And, uh, and we've, we've done very well. And, and lately I've been riding with the Stan's crew, mm -hmm. and that's been really nice. Uh, mm -hmm. Kenny at Stan's just always, you know, super yeah. good about let me in on the 
on the team. And, yeah, you're on the gravy race. train. Yeah. Have you had any crazy mechanicals out there over the years? Any, any just like nothing? Nothing, nothing bad for me. Um, no, no horrible wrecks. The, my most memorable lap though was, uh, God, it must have been about 10 years in, and we had just crazy rain, and and it rained so much that that the entire trail was filled with water. Um, probably three or four inches of water and and every arroyo crossing was just full mm. and it was the most fun lap I'd ever done on a race it was so much fun and it was pitch black it was it was 10 between 10 30 and 12 30 at night and I had the most fun I, I gave a woohoo to everybody I passed <laughs> most people were hunched over their bikes looking like they weren't having as much fun as I was but seriously my most fun lap ever awesome awesome um i in the 24-hour races that i've done i often have trouble with my lights in the middle of the night and have some exciting moments like that how have you ever had that happen where your light cuts out on you and you're doing something like pitch black <laughs> um you know what i've been i've been really lucky and i and i've uh i haven't um and i'm running like some now the all the lights are so good yeah um all the leds before when we when we first started racing i had like a a 15 watt night rider and yeah and you know now the I got, water bottle size yeah, battery exactly. that you put in your water bottle cage that's exactly the one yeah and uh you know you couldn't really see you would you would totally out, go faster than your light was and we just have to yeah rely on faith that, that the trail was still there right um but now i i have like you know a really nice Donati 1600 lumen mm -hmm. i can you know cars hate me yeah kind yeah. of system that technology it's almost one of the biggest changes for 24 hour racing even even compared to like the actual bike you know disc brakes things yeah, like that absolutely that the light technology and and the stands i mean i've had flats and stuff yeah this and, place is just filled with cacti and yeah. now it's it it just doesn't happen mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. if it does it's usually something i did wrong <laughs> user error yes yeah um cool well what are your expectations for uh for tomorrow starts um, starting a new tomorrow 24 hours ahead of us starting the 20th well are um, you are you uh, are you leading off are you the lead rider you, you know i'm not you i'm not much of a runner anymore no. um i used to be the runner mm -hmm. um the first probably five or six years i did this i was the runner mm -hmm. and uh and as i've gotten a bit older i've gotten smarter and had handed that off to one of the younger faster guys okay nice um so so I'll hang back and, and I'll go out at about probably three or four. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just expecting to have a really fun time. Nice. Um, I'm going to try not to freeze on Saturday morning when it's, when it's you know, 3 a.m. and it's really cold. It's pretty cold, yeah. Ice crystals on the cactus. Yeah. Which, which by the way, is visually stunning. Um, I bet. That's happened before where it snowed and there was ice on the cactus. Oh, it was man. Just, it's it's really amazing. That was another fun, memorable uh, race. Well, you, do you remember what year that was? Ah, uh, gosh, probably about um, it's about seven or eight years ago. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. They all kind of run together, yeah, and you've sure. done nineteen sure. of them. Can you how many? <laughs> can you estimate how many miles you've ridden out here in this this loop in the desert I over can, the twenty years? Yeah. During the race, probably averaged uh, five laps. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so, 15 you know, mile lap or something. Yeah, 15 miles. Um, so, 25 times. Carry the one. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it's really funny because 
I'm a math teacher. Oh, well, you should be. Yeah, <laughs> why am I all, doing this for but, you? <laughs> but I'm out of work right. I'm off work right now. Oh so yeah, you switched off. I'm, yeah, okay. yeah I'm not. I'm well, not even thinking there. Well, so 20 times five would be uh, 100. 20 times five is 100. 100, so, 100 laps. So, uh, 1500 miles. 1500 miles. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Uh, any advice to someone who would come out here for the first time? Someone like me, because this is my first time actually. Uh, beware the bitches. Uh, pass with care. Yep. Uh, there's, there's. I've, one of my teammates broke a collarbone uh, on a pass. Got his, mm -hmm. got the handlebars, you know, hit together. Yeah. He went down, collarbone gone. Boom. Uh, yeah. Um, and and be nice. Have a good time. It's really, it's it's all about having fun. Nice. This one is. And, yeah. And I think that's the thing. You know, it's it's kind of off season for a lot of people or beginning of season, mm -hmm. and people aren't. You know, people are competitive, but you know, a lot of people are just out, just having fun, mm -hmm, having mm -hmm. a good time. And then, and then the cacti. How, how, what do I do if I get a cacti in me? <laughs> um, so the jumping choya are the are the real enemy. Okay. Um, and if you don't have a uh, a comb uh, to 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 pull it out, um, I just take two sticks I can find and and pop it out and. Uh, Unfortunately, the you like stop, 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 yeah, and yeah, pop it out. Yeah, um, it hasn't really happened to me on this on this race uh -huh. where I've where I've had to stop. It's happened to me in the Sonoran Desert where I've had to had to stop. Yeah. Um, and you live down here in Tucson. I I live in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Okay. okay. Which is um, it's about five hours from here. Mm -hmm. But um, last fall I I did part of the Arizona Trail and oh, cool. it was right after Hurricane Maria came through and it it. There was choya balls all over the trail. Oh my god! Just get thrown up on everything, and I would, yeah. Hey, at least it's not poison ivy. At least it's not poison I'm a, ivy. Yeah, I'm definitely allergic to poison ivy. So I'll take the desert. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Well, I'm really psyched to talk to you, and this is gonna be a super fun weekend. All right, man. Thanks. Good luck. Nice to meet you. All right. I like Dave. I like Dave's advice. Yeah, he's a he's a good dude, and he's he was hanging out at the stands tent practically all weekend fixing people's flat tires, putting sealant in their tires, just hustling and helping helping people out. He's a good dude. What advice do you have to any listeners out there who might want to do a 24-hour race? Get, get a good light, one that you know isn't going to cut out in the middle of the night because I've had that happen before, and one of my teammates had that happen at Old Pueblo this past weekend. That's a big one. I would also say bring as much warm clothing as you can because it's always going to be colder than you expect in the middle of the night. And certainly when you get back from a from a lap of racing, you don't want to be shivering in the van trying to trying to find a way to warm up. What about like um, IPA versus lager? Hmm, that's a tough question. I mean, it depends on. I would say I would say IPA for like the afternoon, and then maybe lager for like late night. Yeah. you don't want something too heavy in the middle of the night because you get to sleep and everything. Maybe like a rosé or some like a nice like Ooh, a Chardonnay. Fred, no, no. <laughs> well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at pocketoutdoormedia.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on velonews.com. Subscribe to the Velonews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Velonews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash velonews. Velonews podcast is produced by Velonews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Velonews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, it's the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blowout playing the Bernard Purdy Classic Soul Drums. Ah!